We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. Your support helps us to produce more amazing podcasts, stage more live debates each year, and it will bring you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Orlando Figes, the writer and historian, discusses his latest book, The Story of Russia. Our host today is Josh Glancy, special correspondent for the Sunday Times. He sat down recently with Orlando at London's Spiritland studio. Here's Josh with more. Hi, everyone. We are recording on Monday, October the 10th from a studio. Well, it's really a sort of bar, to be honest, in in central London. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Orlando Figes, obviously a very uh, well-known writer on all things to do with Russia. He's an award-winning historian. He's a teacher at Birkbeck College, University of London, Trinity College, Cambridge, I'm sure other places over the years as well. He's the best-selling author of nine books on Russian and European history, including Natasha's Dance and A People's Tragedy. Uh, And his new book uh, we will be discussing today, and it's called The Story of Russia. It's obviously extremely timely. And I think Orlando, it's fair to say, was written somewhat with current events in mind. When did you start writing this book? Well, it was my lockdown book. So I delivered it in November of last year. Mm. Um, And then hurriedly, you know, as we altered the publication date, Mm. Uh, rewrote the last chapter at greater length mm. um, and the cut-off point was the 20th of April um, but you're right that it it was in a way a response to the worsening situation as I saw mm. it from the beginning of the invasion which let's not forget was 2014 yes and my sense that the way the Russians saw their history and the way in which 
the regime was mobilizing that history mm. uh, for its purposes was so very different from the way we saw Russian history, certainly the way I had taught Russian history for 35 years, that um, we needed a book that would be not just a sort of concise history of Russia over mm. a thousand years, which I hope is, is an enjoyable read, but a book that would look at the sort of driving ideas of Russian mm. history and the mythologies about the past that have been used by rulers um, over the centuries to legitimise what what actions they take and project a future for Russia. So I felt that there was a need for that because mm. of this growing, you know, dissonance, really, disconnect between how we see Russia and how the Russians see their own history. And so you're right, you, you, you've you finished this book and then obviously events, mm. they don't overtake it. In fact, they're quite the opposite. They make it sort of more more pressing. And you're right to point out this conflict didn't exactly start in February 2022. In fact, it, it really probably started in 2014. But but how surprised were you by the way in which events came to pass at the beginning of this year? Lots of people were t quite taken aback. Others said, well, you know, no, we, we said Putin was like this all along. We, were you quite shocked by what happened in February? Yes, I mean, I was shocked by the scale of the invasion, mm. by the, the the blitzkrieg on Kiev and the and the general all front attack surprised me. Mm. I, but I had been aware, as, as I think most people were, that there was a growing likelihood of of the conflict over NATO expansion, whatever it is that triggered the invasion mm. um, for in Putin's head, and. Um, so I, I think it was a partly a response to that sense that we needed to unpack the ideas that Putin had about Russian history. I think that the um, immediate sort of sense that I had that this was was coming was 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 that uh, now infamous essay he wrote in July mm, 2021 yeah. on the so-called historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, which did strike me as as a sort of... Uh, well, now we see it as a justification for the war, but it, it did read like a declaration of war at mm, the time. Mm. If that's how he genuinely felt, then... Um, and that's, that, that was something he felt strongly enough to spend his lockdown months mm -hmm. studying very badly Russian history. Um, so you were both, during lockdown, beavering away on your Russian history? Well, I, I think I know my Russian history slightly better than he does in some <laughs> ways. Uh, but but um, there's nothing wrong with that essay, factually. Mm. It's just it's a very weird interpretation mm. to make. And it's completely irrelevant because actually, you know, Ukraine has been a fully independent sovereign state since mm. 1991, and Russia mm. accepted that for a very long time. Mm. So um, it was a very bizarre thing then for the president of Russia to come out with. And that did strike me as as ominous. But I wouldn't claim that I predicted the no. invasion by any stretch, no. I think given what's been happening the last few days, I think we should address some of that um, and some of its historical antecedents and then and then maybe sort of swing back a little deeper into history. Sure. We obviously all saw uh, the Kerch Bridge to Crimea partially destroyed by explosions um, on Saturday. Today, when we're recording, we've, we've just seen Putin's retaliation and it's not pretty. So I'm interested, I mean, Crimea is some, obviously something that matters enormously to him. It's a point of pride. He's responded quickly and violently with missile strikes across Ukrainian cities. Why 
is Crimea so important? Why does he feel his prestige is bound up in it? And why did that bridge attack hit him hard? Why did it hurt? Sure. Well, uh, the the last part of your question is easy enough to, to, to answer in the sense that it, it really was the prestige accomplishment, as he sees it, of, of his regime mm. to, to connect Russia back to Crimea physically in a way that it hadn't been previously, although, of course, they had the, the naval base uh, um, uh, that they rented, so to speak. Um, but yes, Crimea is absolutely crucial. Uh, my book starts in 2016 with the opening of this hideous kitsch nationalist monument to Grand Prince Vladimir, or Volodymyr, as the Ukrainians would call him, the ruler of uh, late 10th century Kievan Rus, who converted for himself and his people to Christianity. And he did so in the Crimea, in a place called Hersonesis, which is just outside Sevastopol. And this, uh, for Putin, was, uh, as he said in that speech on the opening of the monument, the the foundation of the modern Russian state. Um, the, um, uh, The patriarch Kirill, who was very much behind this project as well, argues that, you know, in taking on Christianity for his people, it was the foundation of the the Rus or Russian civilization. Mm. Now, of course, for the Ukrainians, this is absolute nonsense because they, as they said at the time, had their own monument, albeit built in 1853 under mm. the Russian Empire, and they would see uh, th- th- that entry into Byzantium, which effectively is what happened with the conversion to Christianity, Mm. as the foundation of a modern Ukrainian-European state. Mm. In other words, we elected to join Byzantium. That was our window onto onto Europe. Mm. So there are two conflicting foundation myths here. And in a sense, you could root the war to a tussle over whose foundation myth is, Mm. is true. Mm. I don't think either is true, actually. I think mm. the truth about Kievan Rus is that it was a multi-ethnic, open, steppe territory with all sorts of people roaming across it. And ethnicity didn't really connect the people of, of, of Kievan Rus to anything that one could trace to the modern day. But as foundation myths, they're terribly important because they both root the foundation of their nations to Crimea. Mm. And for the Russians, it's particularly important because of that Christian civilization that begins there. It's also important, I think, for Russia in a more modern context because it's you know a place where so many people in the Soviet Union, went on holiday. Mm. It's a great resort. It's a hot, It's the South. It's the good life of summer. It's also um, the seat of the Black Sea fleet in mm-hmm. Sevastopol. So that's absolutely crucial to have that for Russia, that access to the Black Sea and the ability to, to dominate the Near East, which they had uh, with uh, Sevastopol from, from the late 18th century. Really, and I'd say also it's terribly important to Russia because it sort of connects Russia to Europe in itself in a way mm. that it couldn't really claim other than through Crimea because 
it's 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 Crimea that made Russia a Black Sea power, mm. gave it access to the Mediterranean. Um, so it's it's really quite fundamental to the Russian sense of their historic roots, but also their Europeanness. So for all those reasons, I think it's a sort of it's a red line for Putin in his conception of the origins of Russia in his conception of what Russia is. Mm. And so I think if, if this war gets to become a, a sort of fight over Crimea itself, as the, as the bombing of the, of the bridge suggests it might, if it goes on from being simply a, you know, a, an attack on the logistics of the Russian army, if, it, if the Ukrainians want to take back their borders mm. to 1991, pre the 2014 invasion, and if NATO is prepared to back them to that point, I think we're going to get into a very dangerous area mm. of escalation. I wouldn't be surprised if if it was a question, say, of Ukrainian troops actually marching into Crimea. Mm. I think at that point, Putin would probably resort to tactical nuclear weapons if he's exhausted all the other mm. escalatory measures he can still take. Because it, it it's an attack on... Russian soil. It's uh, it's an attack on Russian soil, but it's not... I mean, yeah, he's declared the, the annexed territories Russian yeah. soil. But it's more than that. It's an attack on the Russian soul. Right. Yeah. That's how Putin mm. would see it. Your your description of the two foundational myths, the, the, the features editor in, in me is, is just thinking sort of Vlad versus Vlad. Yeah. Sort of... <laughs> I, 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 I avoided that cliche. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why you're a historian and I'm a journalist. But the Ukrainians obviously want Crimea back. I mean, that they've been quite explicit about that. Indeed. Uh, clearly, we assumed that that attack was by them and was an expression of that desire. What, what what does it mean to them? How important is is that is is Ukrainian desire for Crimea a relatively new thing? Because after twenty fourteen, there wasn't didn't seem like there was that much of a move to, to actually realistically take Crimea back. Certainly not from the international community. Do they also feel that it is foundational to to their identity, an identity that is still is evolving in front of our eyes, or? Is is that quite a new thing that, that they care so Good deeply question. about Crimea? Yeah. Well, I mean, there wasn't much effort after 2014 because the Ukrainian army was very weak. Sure. The regime was very weak. And because the West basically was very weak in its response to the annexation. Mm. Um, since then, there's been quite a bit of NATO investment in Ukraine, which is part of the problem for Russia. Um, because they see NATO turning Ukraine into a sort of anti-Russia, as mm. Putin put it in that essay I referred to. But for, I think for the Ukrainians, it's a simple principled matter of the, this is the territory that is ours. This is our territorial integrity. Mm. This is what has been internationally yeah. recognised. This is what this is the security guarantees we supposedly had in the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. It's all everything about modern day Ukraine is based on the borders of. Of 1991, and so Crimea is is integral to that. Mm. But I fear that it would be too late now for the Ukrainians to to get back Crimea, partly because the West has been so sort of 
almost complicit, really, mm. in in the annexation. I mean, I mean, I was so. I, I mean, I felt very strongly at the time, um, having a particular investment in Crimea because I wrote a book on the Crimean War and mm. uh, had already by that stage built connections with with Crimean Tatars and and and, and other people in Crimea, and felt very angry at the way the West just sort of accepted it as a fait accompli. But, you know, since 2014, Ukrainian national identity has has strengthened immensely. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, Putin may say the Ukrainians are not a nation, but, you know, boy, has he made them into one by, right. by, by, by invading them again. And I think part of that national unity is an uncompromising determination to reclaim Crimea. Well... As I have already suggested, I'm not sure that's possible without nuclear war. Mm. And so at some point, I fear there's going to have to be um, a compromise. Mm. And the West will probably, I suspect, at some point have to start leaning on the Ukrainians to do what nobody wants to see them to do. But... Um, may become inevitable, which is trade land for peace. Mm, certainly not uh, something they seem very keen to do at the moment. No, I mean, I think in that way, Zelensky's in a bit of a corner, really, mm. because the nationalist element, you know, is now so universal in Ukraine. I mean, the Ukrainians yeah. I've spoken to, the idea that they might sort of give recognition that Crimea is now Russia or even that Donbass is now. I mean, this is something no one, I don't think, in Ukraine is prepared to accept. Mm. I mean, having said that, I think that the occupied territories of Donbass contain a, a lot of people who are mainly old mm. because they've lived there all their lives and they don't have mobility and... They probably, you know, they, they say it's a shame that half the city was destroyed that they live in, but they, I don't think they feel that strongly about it because they just want to go on living their daily lives. Yeah. And most of them are Russian speakers. So they're not politicised about it in the way that younger Ukrainians are mm. or the Ukrainian nationalists are who completely understandably want Crimean back. And so take us a little bit back to the beginning. Why does Ukraine play such a central role in the foundation of Russia, and 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 we've talked about Crimea, but but Ukraine more generally, and why is it that someone like Putin can convincingly, at least internally, convincingly claim that Ukraine is Russia? Um, obviously, a lot of people there speak Russian, so that's one reason. But but take us back to some of the history you talk about this book. What what is the story about Ukraine that Russia tells itself? The story that Putin tells the Russians, and it's the story that basically Russian imperial historiography told the Russians from the 18th century, is that Ukraine was little Russia. Ukraine was part of greater Russia. It had a dialect, but not a language. Mm. Um, and its uh, capital, Kiev, was the foundation of modern Russia. But that was the first state. So uh, it's a source of Russian civilization for the Russians, as well as a source of their Christianity. Mm. And although for much of Russia's history, after the fall of Kiev and Rus in 1240, when the Mongol occupation overturned Kiev and subjected most of Russia and about half of present-day Ukraine to Mongol rule, mm. indirect rule. Basically, they collected tribute. Yes. Um, and uh, f 
from that point in 1240, much of Ukraine actually took a different path from Russia. I mean, the Western territories uh, were brought into the orbit of Poland-Lithuania, which is one of the great medieval states. You have a number of Catholics in Western Ukraine. But from the 17th century, Ukraine was brought back into the Russian fold because of the Cossacks, essentially. And the Cossacks were, uh, again, it, they're not particularly Ukrainian or particularly Russian. They're sort of multi-ethnic caste of, of warriors who, who, who carry out everything from brigandage to fighting for anyone who pay them. Mm. And they had their own sort of meta, uh, sort of quasi-states, really, uh, hetmanates in, in, in the area we now call Ukraine. So there was a hetman of, uh, of, of Don Cossacks and Zaporizhia mm. Cossacks. And the Zaporizhian Cossacks uh, were fighting because they were orthodox against Poland and Lithuania and invited um, the Tsar to uh, support them. Well, the Tsar, Alexei, at this point, in, we're talking about the 1640s, early 50s, was very reluctant to do that. But interestingly, it was the patriarch Nikon who wanted... Uh, Russia to back this orthodox war fought by the Cossacks against the Poles and Lithuanians right. as a sort of holy war. So, I mean, I mean, this is quite, you know, resonant with what's happening today. I mean, because a major source behind this war is Patriarch Kirill, who would also mm. say that he has said that the, the invasion of Ukraine is, is a holy war. So it's from that point that, that, that Ukraine is brought back into a Russian fold and under Catherine the Great is made a regular part of provincial administration. And she then leads the conquest of what becomes known as New Russia, which mm. are the areas that have just been annexed, minus the Donbass. So New Russia was all of the coastal area on the north, uh, on the northern littoral of the Black Sea, so from Odessa mm. through to Mariupol. And, and they were called New Russia until 1917. Mm. So that becomes another dispute about what is the place of Ukraine in Russia's legacy in, in its territorial claims. Because, you know, under the Soviet Union, it didn't really matter so much mm. where the boundaries were. I mean, the, the idea of the Soviet Union was that, that nation states were gone, that you could have a cultural nation, but otherwise you were all part of the same political entity, mm. which was Soviet. So the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991 then raised a whole set of new issues about Ukraine because those southern areas of new Russia mm. and the Donbass were claimed by Russian nationalists like Solzhenitsyn, like Sobchak, who was Putin's mentor, as historic Russian lands. Mm. And so in that essay I, I referred back to from 2021, Putin makes the argument there that if Ukraine wants to wanted to leave the Soviet Union, as it voted to do so in 1991, then fine, but it should leave with what it came in with. Right. And there are two ways you can see that. You could say it came in with nothing because Ukraine didn't really exist mm. as a nation state, although there were two moments, but, you know, very brief moments in the revolution and the civil war when there were Ukrainian parliamentary and then nationalist governments in situ, but they didn't last very long. Or you could say they should have what they had minus New Russia and the Donbass. 
So one way of looking at Putin's sort of strategy is to say he's trying to reclaim those historic Russian lands. But, you know, he hasn't really made clear what his war aims are or why he's fighting. He began with the whole question of it's a historically justified war because Ukraine is is uh, is us. Ukraine mm. is just a variant of Russians and so should belong to us. He's then moved on from that to argue, and this I think is is more... I think this is closer to his real thinking. He argues in that essay that every time Ukraine, after the middle of the 17th century, and it was reincorporated into the Russian mm. world, if you like, every time that the little Russians, as he would call them, tried to break free from the great Russians, the Russians, uh, to assert their independence, they fell under the influence of hostile Western powers. Mm. So he cites the Poles and the Lithuanians in the in the 18th century, the Austrians in the 19th century, the Germans in the First World War, the Allied powers in the Russian Civil War, the Nazis in the Second mm. World War, then NATO today, he would say, they've all been doing the same thing, which is encouraging Ukrainian nationalism to turn Ukraine against Russia. And that has, to come back to your question in a rather long-winded way, <laughs> that has real resonance with with many Russians mm. who've been brought up on this story of Russia, taught in schools, embedded in Russian historiography, and since then pumped out through every propaganda channel, film, TV, books, novels, and the whole lot, that Russia is, is vulnerable to attack mm. from the West, and Ukraine is its most vulnerable point. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And, and this sense that the Ukrainians sort of can't really be trusted to, to, yeah. to not be under the sort of aegis of, of Russia in some way. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, uh, it's not, it's hard to tell how Putin would actually explain all of that mm. because the implication of his essay is and, and everything he's, he's argued is that they, that they, they have a sort of illusory nationalism, mm. an illusory sense of their nationhood, which has been all pumped up for them by, by, by enemies of Russia in the yes. West. And uh, but on the other hand, you know, there there are many other ways one could explain that. Mm. So it's not clear exactly where he comes from on that. Yeah. So Putin is obviously, as as we've discussed, someone who who thinks about history in his own particular way. But you write in your book that history somehow matters more in Russia almost than anywhere else in the world, which is obviously a convenient thing for a historian of Russia to say. <laughs> but but you know, you do make this point compellingly that actually. History is very central to the Russian conception of itself. I can think of some other places where that's true as well. But what, why do you think history is so important to Russia? And why do you think it plays such a dominant role in informing its its behaviour today? And, and that obviously extends well beyond Putin. I think it's because history takes the place of normal political discourse. There's very little tradition, and certainly under Putin there has been very little space for even agreement about what, you know, what terms like democracy mean. Mm. So, I mean, you know, Putin defines it as sovereign democracy, which means we call it democracy. And then you have no right to tell us right. <laughs> what the content of it should be. I mean, we have elections. We can fix them, but there are elections. You fix your elections. We're a democratic society, mm. but we want to be sovereign and define our so- democracy for ourselves. Of course, that's a very different view of democracy from the way uh, we in the West, as liberal Democrats, if you like, would see it. So the the normal discourse and understanding of political concepts just isn't developed in mm. Russia mm. because of the weakness of parliamentary traditions, because of the weakness of free speech and assembly, because of the history of Russia under autocracy for so many centuries. So history for the state... Uh, is a substitute for that because you can outline what your ideology is by referring to your interpretation of history. Mm. So Putin is is a very Slavophile leader, by which I mean that he defines Russia's interests in opposition to the West, mm. not just as different from the West, which is the original, more benign interpretation of the Slavophiles when they were sort of basically intellectuals worried about, um, you know, the westernization of the Russian language language or mm. when they felt that Russians were losing their sense of national identity because they were aping the the, the West. Um, Putin's Slavophilism is rather more radical than that. I would put it in the category of those late 19th century Slavophiles like Danilevsky, who argued in the wake of the Crimean War defeat in, in the middle of the 1850s mm. that, that the West is 
is our enemy, mm. that we as Russians need no longer measure our success by Western standards, and that we should reject all Western so-called universal principles as just hypocritical, mm. as double standards, mm. because they apply one set of rules to us and then live by a different set of rules. That's what these sort of Russian nationalists learned from the Crimean War debacle. Mm. And um, so uh, I think Putin comes out of that stable, but that means that that radical nationalist Slavophilism then carries with it and is indeed expressed through a number of historical interpretations. Mm. And they have to be made clear in order to uh, delineate what is the ideology of Putinism. Mm. So he, he's, he's opened all of these My History parks where school kids, military cadets are all sort of taken by the coach load to be told what they should think about Alexander Nevsky or what right. they should think about Peter the Great or what they should think about Russia's relations with the West or what they should think about the colonization of Siberia. So, you know, all of these things become part of the ideology ideology and then are activated to carry out policy because mm. they will fit the national story that's how it works and 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 you know there's no other way they can do that ideologically than through history i believe that's fascinating so it's it's a sort of it reminds me when I was in America, it, people often used to say during the Trump era particularly that in America, politics and entertainment become <laughs> merged and you're saying in, in Russia, sort of politics and history become merged in that way. Clearly, you you know, you, you write and, and feel that the West has got quite a lot wrong about Russia or misjudged various things about Russia in recent decades uh, and maybe <laughs> for longer than that. <laughs> one of the things that you write a lot about is, is religion. Uh, and it strikes me that that's probably one of the things that we, we do sometimes misunderstand about Russia. Tell me a little bit more about the role the Russian Orthodox Church is, and, and religion is playing in this war. And why do you think we, we we sort of struggle perhaps to fully comprehend that sometimes? Well, if I can take the second part first, yeah. uh, um, I think the reason why we have got Russia wrong for so long <laughs> in all sorts of ways is that we've tended to firstly impose our own Western values mm. onto Russia mm. and then declare Russians and the Russian nation and state to be a failure because they don't quite come up to our expectations. And part of the reason for that, I, I think, and I argue it in the book, is that the West has always been very dependent on the Russian intelligentsia for mm. its views of Russia. Mm. Those are the people scholars talk to, those are the people we read, those are the people we feel an affinity with, because most people who study Russia or deal with Russia never go beyond Petersburg and Moscow anyway. Those are the people they're going to meet. Mm. The trouble with that is that the Russian intelligentsia sees Russia through Western eyes. So you get this sort of uh, perfect circle you can't break. Mm. Um, and and the, the church is a good example of, of those spaces of the Russian mind, if we can put it that way. I don't like using the words mindset mm. and stuff. But You'll get into the Russian soul now. The Russian, I don't <laughs> want to get into the Russian soul, for sure. But I mean, those areas that have formed the Russian way of thinking about the world that stem from its religion, 
tend to get overlooked by mm. the secular Russian intelligentsia and by those who rely on the secular Russian intelligentsia to look at Russia. And we we tend to think, well, you know, there's a division between church and state. Well, there isn't one really in, in Russia. Russia has always been politically um, a sort of Byzantine empire in the sense that, as in Byzantium, church and state are two sides of the same coin. Mm. The Tsar, who inherits from Byzantium the not just the blessing of Christ, but the power of a human god. Mm. So under the Russian tradition of autocracy, there's always been this tendency to sacralize political power. Mm. So the Tsar is the holy Tsar. Uh, which you can see then feeds into the cult of Stalin and Lenin as yeah. these f f almost sort of godlike figures that have to be worshipped and venerated and taken on trust, never questioned. Um, the other part of that religious concept of power is is the notion of the Russian land or holy Russia itself, because this is part of the original mythology of of, of Russia, that it is literally the place where Christ is going to come when he reappears. Mm. You know, it's a Russia has the true God because the it's basically what we call the third Rome ideology that mm. Moscow, after the fall of Rome, after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, when it was overrun by the Turks, was the last true seat of orthodoxy, Christianity. Mm. And the, you know, the, the, the Catholic state had, had, had fallen into heresy effectively. So, so that idea that, you know, we have the true religion and we have the ruler who is the true God mm. is, is a very important part of that. But it's, uh, it's not just religion, I think. I think it's also another element of this which comes from the, the Mongol occupation. The Mongols, the Golden Horde, as they were in Russia, occupied and collected tribute from, from the Russian mm. principalities for 250 years, more or less, at a time when the rest of Europe was going through the Renaissance, the scientific revolution, codification of the laws, everything that we now see as the foundations of Western civilization. But they took place at a time when Russia was basically paying tribute to, to the Mongols and never had the ability to to, to, to develop or ha even have contact mm. with Europe very much. Um, so um, so, so the, the, the tradition that comes out of that Mongol experience, which I think is always denied in Russia because they like to see themselves as basically Europeans and Christians, and the, the, the Mongols came, but they, they left and, and there was no trace of them. This mm. is nonsense. The Mongol occupation left deep imprint on Russian culture and above all on, on Russia's statehood. Because uh, Ivan IV, or the Terrible, who was the first sort of Tsar of, of Muscovy, as it was mm. then, to, to push back the, the, the Mongols and build a state around Moscow's power, um, did so by inheriting so many of those Mongol political traditions. Mm. So the idea that, you know, you own the land, as Genghis Khan thought he did, and that your, your, your servitors may be rewarded with bits of land for serving you, but 
you can take it away from them any mm. moment. There's no full allodial property in the Western sense. So there's no development in Russia of a fully independent landowning aristocracy. They're, they're military and civil servitors whose, whose, whose tenure of land is conditional upon the Tsar's favour. Mm. I would go so far as to say that you can trace that right up to Putin and the, and the oligarchs, that they are like the boyars to Ivan the Fourth, that, you know, they can be allowed to enrich themselves. Yes. But they have to do what the Tsar tells them. Mm. If Putin tells them, give me a hundred million dollars, or if Putin says, go and run Chukotka, as he said to Abramovich, they have to go and do I'm it. Go and buy Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he told him to do that. <laughs> yes, yeah, the point of some debate. Um, we have a couple of questions I, I want to get to. They're quite from uh, audience members. They're quite big sure. ones, though, so we'll have to sort of pray see the answers a bit. I have one quick question for you before we get onto them, which I'm always curious about. What, what has drawn you to Russia as a historian, as a writer, over the years? That may be a, there may be a long answer to that, but what what is the sort of the thing that really has drawn you to this subject, this story, this country over the years? Well, I mean, originally I was pushed in that direction. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, I was interested in German-Jewish intellectual history, right? Uh, particularly the young Hegelians. Mm. And my, my, my supervisor at that time was, uh, a, 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 at that point, a very famous historian called Norman Stone. I don't know if yes. you ever came across him. Yeah, yeah, I've read his book. And, and, and he said to me, Orlando, if you you got trouble with your girlfriend, or you're hung over, you don't want to battle with Hegel every morning. So why don't you do something empirical? And suggested Russian peasants, and they gave me a grant to to, to learn Russian, uh, mm. which I did in 1983. And 1984 went off to to the Soviet Union to to work on Russian peasants in the archives. <laughs> and I think I just took to it really. I mean, it, it I I I loved the quality of the intellectual life there. Mm. The Russians were never any good at small talk. You know, mm. I'm not particularly good at small talk either. <laughs> um, they they're good at you know debates over the kitchen table. That's their sort of world. Or, at least it was in, in 1984. And yeah, it was just such a big, big culture and big history. And uh, yeah, just I just got hooked on, on, on that, I suppose. I mean, but yeah, I have to say it's always been a love-hate relationship. Mm. I mean, the things about Russia, I just, you know, makes me want to scream and particularly you know this war obviously but the fascination has 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 never has never dimmed even if i have to sort of occasionally go and do something else like like the book i wrote on called the europeans which was mm. my relief from it really yeah yeah so right a couple of questions to finish um Kyle in New York asks, would liberal democracy be wrong for russia and i think that's an interesting one because there was this perhaps naive sense after the fall of the Soviet Union, that actually democracy could work in Russia and that, as you alluded to earlier, that Russia would become like us. That obviously doesn't look very likely at the moment. One doesn't want to be sort of overly generalised, but is is democracy, is, in the liberal sense as we understand it, compatible with Russia, do you think? Well, if you look through Russian history, there's many elements of of social organization which are intrinsically democratic mm -hmm. in spirit so the basic unit of russian society until uh collectivization in the 1930s was the russian peasant commune which was a thoroughly democratic egalitarian self-governing community of peasant mm -hmm. farmers so it's not that there isn't the ability to become democrats but i don't think the liberal democratic mold would would fit very easily uh for all the sorts of reasons we've been discussing mm. 
But you know, um, I have a I have a sense that in 1917 there could have been a different, more direct form of democracy run through the Soviets. Now, don't get frightened and think I'm some sort of communist because the Soviet all it means is is a committee basically, mm. it's a self-governing committee. And I think that there were people at that time, some of the Mensheviks and SRs or socialist revolutionaries, who. Who, who could see um, the, the the direct participatory democracy of local Soviet power could be somehow grafted onto a national parliamentary system of democracy, i.e. not a class-based one like the Soviets, but a generally national representative body like the Constituent Assembly, which unfortunately was elected and then the Bolsheviks closed it mm. down. So, you know, they're, they're, I don't think liberal democracy is, is an easy fit on Russia, um, and I don't think it ever will be, probably. But I think that, um, that more forms of direct democracy could work. I, but I don't think that means, and this is perhaps the, 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 the real um, sort of issue with, with what I've just said, I don't think you could move towards some sort of regional governance, which people like Hodokovsky favour, or which people mm. um, in the opposition favour, because Russia, if you think about it, is a state with which is heavily uh, natural resource dependent, mm. so fossil fuels, minerals, etc. And if you allow, I mean, so in, in, those economic resources sort of require a, a highly centralised state mm. in order then to redistribute the income from Gazprom or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the problem is it doesn't get redistributed because sure. there's so much corruption. Um, but it doesn't get redistributed to everyone, rather than <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't get. Yeah, I mean, it's the patrimonial state. Yes, that's exactly an example of what mm. I mean by the patrimonial state. Uh, and and the people who who govern the industries like Gazprom for Putin and the Russian state they they see it as their their feeding grounds mm. they literally refer to it as their feeding grounds which is an old patrimonial concept of I will administer the oil reserves of Siberia but I will also profit from them mm. so you know, a, a highly decentralized regional sort of governance wouldn't really work for Russia either. So I think we have a problem here mm. as to uh, as to what sort of political system would work for Russia. Well, that leads me into the next uh, question from Carl, which is: Could you envision a scenario where there is a breakup of Russia into smaller states? It's been for the same reason, no. Right. I mean, yes, at the fringes, you could. Mm. Yeah, you, you, especially if they carry on mobilising from, from the the, the um, you know so-called minorities like Dagestan, Ingushetia, etc. There, there could be on the fringes breakaway movements, but I don't see um, any possibility of Russia being sort of carved up into fiefdoms, which mm. is what they thought of doing when they invaded Russia in the 17th century or even in the 19th century. Uh, in Palmerston had that idea. Mm. Um, and it's being mooted now, isn't it? That the problem of Russia is being imperial aggressive power, too big. We need yep. to break it up. Yes. Who, who, who's the we who's going to break it up other than yeah. by conquering it? I don't know. But um, again, the problem is how can you have small states with no resources? Mm. Last question for you, uh, Orlando, is um, one we hear a lot in different forms, which is what do you think will happen in Russia when Putin dies? And sort of Russia after Putin has been a subject of speculation for many years. It's obviously 
now people start to think, well, well, if we got Putin out of the way, could that end the war or, or lead to some sort of settlement? Who knows when Putin will, will no longer be with us? But but what, what? how do you see Russia's future with him gone? Well, it depends how much longer he's around for. Mm. I mean, he might be forced out before he dies. Um, but if he lives, say, if I can't see anything but a Putin Mark II, and perhaps mm. worse, mm. after Putin. Because especially if he goes while this war is still on, and I think the war is going to go on for some time, mm. um, it's more likely he's replaced by a very hardline nationalist who wants to take the war to the West uh, than he's replaced by someone looking for a diplomatic solution. Simply because for those, for the regime and those in power, those are in, around the inner circle and indeed in the outer circles, to some extent, it's an existential battle. So I'm afraid that it's wishful thinking to to suppose that Putin goes and they all breathe a sigh of relief and say, let's get in someone more reasonable and, and make peace with the West. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, that's a rather sombre note on which I'm to end. I'm afraid it is. Um, <laughs> but it's been a fascinating discussion and certainly a lot of insights into how we got to this point that we're at now. So I'd like to thank Orlando Fijis uh, for you. a fascinating conversation. And um, the book, again, is The Story of Russia, and it's in a lot of bookshop windows, uh, certainly in this part of town of London. I'm Josh Clancy, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared, and thank you for doing so. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.